This is exactly right. Listen, we're all SVU fans. We love a family drama. We love a mystery to solve. And you got to get hooked into a story with the details. You need the visuals. You need the storylines with the twists and the turns. And that is what June's Journey has and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young girl on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murderer. Dun, 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 dun. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. The game is filled with all these beautiful detailed scenes from the 20s, like lavish estates and gardens. And of course, little hidden clues are everywhere. There's twists, turns, catchy tunes. It all takes you deep deeper into this storyline. And if you play well enough, you can make it into the detective club. And there you can chat with other players and even compete with or against them, which is pretty exciting. And you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed. And can you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. Okay, love that. And guess what? It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Of the Law & Order franchises, SVU is considered especially watchable. We are the amateur detectives who kind of investigate the vicious felonies these episodes are based on. These are our stories. Dun-dun! And welcome to That's Messed Up, an SVU podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Kara Clank. And I'm Lisa Traeger. Hello. We talk <laughs> SVU crimes. We have celeb guests. Today is a, a real barn burner. No big deal. Um, I don't even know what that means. I just know it from the movie Big Business for the mini golf championship. I say it all the time. I say that all the time and I don't really know what the etymology is of that. Like, did people used to just burn barns and be like, yes, for the it's the best. I don't know. But I do say that. And this is a barn burner. This is a hot one. It's hot a hot up. episode, hot everything. It, it's July, so it's hot. <laughs> um, so that's a thing. Yeah, as always, we're in the time machine, but just reminding you guys all that it is July, but we will be on tour starting in September. Grab those tickets for... D.C., Atlanta, Charlotte, Raleigh. Those are our first dates coming up in September. And we'd love to see you all out when we're out on the road. Truly, we're touring through December. So check if we're coming to a town near you. Yeah, check all of our dates. Um, We're adding new ones all the time. There's a couple that we can't announce yet, but that are coming. So stay tuned. And all of our info for that is at thatsmessedoplive.com. And... Yeah, we're always talking about it on our Instagram too. So if you're not following our Instagram, I don't know. It's like you don't want to know the information, but uh, give our Instagram and a follow. Survival of the Thickest out on yeah. Netflix. So oh yes, watch it's it. out now. Oh my gosh, we're in the time machine, so obviously haven't seen it yet. But I'm here to give you my future review, which is that I love it. Um, and everybody watch that show. 
And yeah, we have we have new sizes stocked up in the... Thank you guys so much for getting that Do You Have Children Detective t-shirt that we... Our muscle tee that we put up in our merch shop. It's sold out of a bunch of sizes very quickly. So they've ordered more. So now all the sizes are available again. Um, and we are going to be doing, I think, new fall merch. So stay tuned. And whatever. Today is the day after the 4th of July in the time machine. And... So what? how we, was it? Did Rosie love staying up late? We both live in a extremely high traffic firework neighborhood. Um, She did. Like our neighbor was lighting off fireworks and he usually does like a lot of big ones. This year, he just did a few big ones. Rosie did not like the big ones that much because they really are so loud and they're right we're right under them because he's there. Like, and so she was like, can you ask him to stop doing the big ones? But like, I was like, sure, I'll ask him to stop. But I didn't. But then uh, she got, they gave her sparklers. She loved that. She was wearing her noise-canceling headphones that are her dad's. And she was having the time of her life. And then this morning, she was a little baby bitch because she was so tired. But, you know, we got her off to school and, you know, they don't get the fifth off. So, they have to just go with their little party hangover to school. So, wow, but so she had a great she time. Learned about sleep. Yeah, like she only got eight and a half hours, and for her, that's like nothing. She was like, uh, you know. So that's so freaking cute. What What are the snacks that get her wild for July Fourth? Oh, I mean, whatever. Like she's, not, you know how picky she is. They were just eating. We went to this barbecue and they just had their hands in this big bag of Lay's potato chips. And I'm like, I'm sorry if anybody else wanted those because they were just like going to town on these chips. And she ate like three hot dog buns. Oscar ate a hot dog and they were loving life. But I did take them to a barbecue that there were no other children at. And then one other child showed up. He was nine and a half and his name was Oscar. And I was like, you poor child. All you're going to hear is me going, Oscar, no, Oscar, stop, Oscar. Like, because, well, you, you know, know, that's Oscar. wild? Is Oscar Mayer not really a cool brand anyway? I just remember it being such a big cultural touch point. And I've never heard, I haven't heard Oscar Mayer since I've just said it right now, in years. I know. I feel like maybe they fell off. It was such a big deal because of the song, you know? I wish I was an Oscar Mayer wiener. Like, that was a big song. And the the Wienermobile. I remember that. And the Wienermobile. Because I remember yes. we went to a car show in Chicago and the Wienermobile was there. And that was huge. That felt cool. Yeah. But yeah, no one cares about it. I hear people talking Nathan's, Hebrew National. Just, I don't really hear the Oscar Mayer in the discourse, in the hot dog discourse anymore. But I also don't eat hot dogs. So I'm eating fucking rubber band dogs. If anyone has a good recommendation of a vegetarian hot dog, let me know. I know the Beyond sausages are good and blah, blah, blah. But I like the taste of an old hot dog. And these these vegetarian ones are really, it's like a rubber band warmed up. Would love a wreck. Yeah. I don't know. I liked all the memes that were like, America was fucking up. And then they're like, what are you guys doing for my birthday? Yeah. And everyone's <laughs> like, one. we don't want to party with you. And then the, America's like, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah. Like four days before your birthday, you literally blew everything up with these fucking Supreme Court decisions. And then you're like, where are we partying? Like, so funny. When I, I love, like, I do love an American flag bikini. Like, I do love a sexy American flag outfit. But this year, it didn't hit the same. Like, certain people I follow are wearing, like, hot American flag things. And I was like, I don't know. Not, yeah. I don't, it seems 
Like, I'm against I it this sort year. Of like I didn't hate, hate red, white, and blue. Yeah. I sort of don't, like, famously don't love the color combination of red, white, and blue. It's not really my favorite. So I've never been a big American flag person. Well, you know what um, else I love are those cakes that are, like, whipped cream and fruits. You know? Yes. Like, I really like yeah. that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was wondering, like, I hate LA so much in terms of just my own personal experience. Um, It is pretty. Um, But yesterday when the fireworks were going off, I was like, I do love, LA does have a market on fireworks. Yeah. I'll say no, that. It, it is really a part of the culture that's not in other places. Like, I've seen fireworks other places, but it is something special here. Yeah. And like, honestly... I think I'm spoiled because I got like the pandemic summer was out of control. Like the the sky was lit up because no one could go anywhere and everybody was bored and they were just, everyone was like, it was the wildest fireworks I've ever seen. So now the last couple of years, I'm like, eh, not as big, but like that's because it's not like a full global pandemic, but it is awesome. Like everybody goes really to town on them and they're really fun. And I took my- People don't need to really leave their home. Like if you go to somewhere on the hills, like a lot of people like live in places where yeah. you, you'll just see them. I saw them out my window. Yeah, we don't even live on a hill at all. And like just up in the sky, there they are. So it's like, you don't even have to go to like, like in my town growing up, everybody went to the this park and then there was a fireworks show and that's like everybody had to gather and then it's like t- traffic and all the shit. That's not really LA. You can just kind of look up in the sky pretty much anywhere you are. But- I took my kids to this uh, little local neighborhood parade where the kids all walk like eight blocks and they decorate their little scooters. Rosie's not the most adept scooter. She did fall a bunch of times. And so we ended up carrying the scooter. And we you end up at this guy's house. And he usually, last year, he had the Bob Baker puppets, which you know I'm a stan, and popsicles for the kids or whatever. So we're all like parading there. We're ready for the Bob Baker puppets. And we go there this year and it's uh, fully a comic ventriloquist. It's like a guy with puppets and he's a ventriloquist. And it was like the funny, it was like the cheesiest, most Catskills act like you've ever seen this guy. And the the jokes were like dropping dead, but then the kids like loved the puppets. So the parents were all just like looking at each other like, what the fuck is going on? This man was five feet tall wearing a cat, a cat shirt, like a button down collared shirt that was just like cats. And I don't know. I put a little story of it on my Instagram. He made them sing God Bless America to open it up. Like no one knew the words. I was like, sir, this is not the audience. Like we're not a big, LA's not a big God, God Bless America town, I would say. And it was so funny. And everybody also, kept like- who's this host? Well, I could tell you a little bit of his background offline, but I, if I say it here, I will be like, doxing him. I'll be like saying who he is and I don't want to like do that. So Dox I guess- him. Yeah. <laughs> But Vigilante justice. Guess baby. who I saw there? Former guest Dreama Walker was there. We wow. saw each other across the thing, and I was like, "Hi!" And then we talked for a little bit, and we were like, "How about this guy?" And like, we couldn't say it too loud because the kids were into the puppets. Because like, he had a dragon that breathed like smoke that was really cute, and he had a he had a elephant that squirted water. Like, it was cute. He had the stuff was cute for the kids, but his act was so cheesy, and he kept going. I drove two hours from San Diego, and I was like, of course course you did, sir. Like, it was just so funny to me. Um, And everybody kept, like, joking to me and Jared being like, don't let, like, you know, making jokes. Like, you guys want to get this guy on your show, you know? Like, so, it was a fun, eventful day. Well, you know, this, this does fall in line with hot dogs, kind of. JK, it's beef sandwiches, but the bear is so good. (laughs) 
I just want everyone to watch it. The bear really knocked my socks off. So that's that's what it's I have to say. It's all out now? You finished it? Yeah, I finished it. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's really like a binge watch for me. It really is compelling television in a fantastic way. I'm going to watch it this month. But should we get started? Because we have honestly such an amazing guest today. Such a like classic episode that I don't even want to wait any longer before we start. So don't go anywhere. Yay. Okay. Today's episode is Ballerina Season 10, Episode 16. And we open on a dork who's in his bed tossing I and mean, turning. We can't <laughs> just start. We've been dying to do this episode. Oh. <laughs> this is one of the all-time greats, the greatest guest stars, the great... I mean, this isn't just any sort of episode. I mean, all our episodes are special. We love lots of them, but to dive right in is insane. Apologies. We really have been waiting to do this one. It (laughs) it all came together and here we are. I'm really excited and that's it. I don't know what to say. Yeah, I guess that's it. I shouldn't have yelled at you, but um, (laughs) you can begin now, my bad. I will sit down. (laughs) No, no, I mean... This is one of those episodes where we were waiting on a guest and I think you'll be pleased with what we came up with. So we open on this dork. He's in his bed tossing and turning. He cannot sleep because his roommate is watching some kind of pornographic content. He goes out into the living room and his dirtbag roommate is watching some kind of Cinemax pay-per-view at full volume. And the roommate's like, what's up? And then the dork pulls the plug on the pay-per-view and he's like, it's my pay-per-view. It's my TV. It's my couch. And the guy's like, here's 20 bucks. But the dork is like, no, you got to get the fuck out of here. You're moving out like right now, tonight, in the middle of the night. And the dirtbag goes, make me. So the dork goes to the kitchen and grabs a butcher knife. I don't even own a butcher knife. This is... This has escalated very quickly. And then the dirtbag like pushes the dork and suddenly there's blood spatter and the dirtbag has been shot and the dork is so confused. He goes, how? And then dirtbag falls to the floor with a gunshot wound in his back. So what the hell has happened? Cut to. This is one of my favorite little tropes. I love a bullet through a wall. I love a um, a misguided missile. Uh, Or not. Maybe it's terrible. But in terms of SVU, I love it. It's truly wild. So suddenly we meet, drumroll, Dale Stuckey. This is the first moment we meet this character. Stop. Oh, my God. Yes. So we've covered him in the episode Zebras, which is obviously his final episode. But his very first one is this one. He's like, out of the way, SVU. And he's immediately one of the wildest characters of all time. Like you just tell from the jump. He introduces himself to a very skeptical Benson and Stabler. He's like, I'm the new CSU tech, but I got big dreams to be more than that. Don't worry, I'm not gunning for either of your jobs. And it's like, LOL at the idea of this man ever talking to an assault victim. And so he explains that the crime scene is in apartment 110, even though the call came from 112. Sucky's like, oh, that was just collateral damage. The bullet went through the wall and killed the guy in 112. Cool, huh? He says, cool, huh, to Benson and Stabler. They give each other looks like, what the actual fuck is wrong with this guy? And then in the apartment, we find our cutie Ryan O'Halloran, a.k.a. Mike Doyle, friend of the pod. He's bent down examining a different dead guy in his underwear, leaned up against a wall, and Stucky's like, 
And then there's, there's in the background, there's a woman who's dead on the bed. And Stucky's like, pretty obvious what happened. Rape, murder, suicide, bing, bang, bong. And they're like, Stucky, kindly fuck off. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. Stucky thinks he's got the whole case wrapped up, but he's a full moron. So obviously he does not. And I, I just like find it hard to believe that this guy graduated from CSU school or whatever. Like, it's a very detail-oriented, serious job. And I just don't believe this clown would have gotten through. But... Yeah, you know. it's interesting though, because here he's being simple, simple, and they're like, you're a fool. And then in Zebras, an episode we covered, he's being wild, and they're like, relax, it's usually simple. So I think it's, he's like Lindsay Hubbard in Summer House. He can do no right. <laughs> yes, the poor persecuted Stucky. He just can't <laughs> get it right. <laughs> No, he's annoying. He's um he's annoying and he's bad at his job and he's a maniac and we learn later um a true a real a real maniac. Yes, real yes. Maniac. we learn later an actual psychopathic maniac. Um, but please, Noel Fisher, get your ass on our podcast. What the fuck? <laughs> we are waiting. Ding dong. Bing bang bong. Um TikTok. So now Liv obviously very quickly squashes Stucky's idiotic theory by doing one second of actual investigating. And then Stabler points out that the guy has the gun in his right hand, but his belt placement in his pants shows that he's left-handed. So they're basically like, look, Stucky, if you read between the lines, you could actually find some clues to your case. And he's like, you guys think somebody else murdered them and made it look like a suicide? And Liv goes, bing, bang, bong. Then O'Halloran says, this possible suspect probably waited in the closet for them and he left a nice ear print. And there's like a, you know, the way that they like brush and dust for prints. There's like a full ear print there on the mirror in the closet. And then Stabler goes, guess our killer didn't like what he heard, which is right out of Jerry Arbach's book of murder scene quips. And that takes us right to the credits. And at the precinct, Daddy Cragen's like, an ear print? And according to O'Halloran, ear prints are physically unique. Who knew? And Munch goes, Europe has led the way on ear print identification. Just a matter of time before the U.S. catches up. And it's like, um, yeah, we have a lot of things to catch up on here. I don't think ear print IDing is the top priority. But I looked this up. <laughs> And the Forensic Ear Identification uh, Research Project, which was which is abbreviated to FEAR ID, the FEAR ID project research uh, research project started in 2002 and was sponsored by the EU, but was ultimately kind of a flop because they found that people didn't all use the same pressure pressing their ear against the glass, which could alter the results. Like it's like everybody pretty much presses their fingerprints down on the ink in the same way. And you can like check out the whirls and the arches or whatever. But with the ear, it doesn't, it just didn't work. So that's why we're not all getting our ears fucking taken at the, at the. Yeah, Europe. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Europe. Fuck sorry, you, Munch. the EU. <laughs> um, this reminds me of one of my favorite forensic files, which was a brutal crime, very upsetting. But the man, for some reason, committed the crime shoeless. It was like a neighbor, and he stepped on a on a hamburger bun, and so his footprint was in a hamburger bun, and that's how he was. No, uh, he was. I love uh, convicted. I yeah, absolutely love that. I thought you would. That's so good. Hamburger print footprint. Mm -hmm. That's a great Halloween costume. Yes. Oh my God. 
Um, anyway, the whole point of this ear conversation is that Finn gets to tell Munch that he has Dumbo ears, so it's all been worth it. Benson says Warner got DNA off the ear print, like epithelial DNA or something, and it matches the semen in the female victim, Tisa, and also the gun belonged to Tisa. So they go to the scan station images, which I've never heard of, where we watch like a crude computer simulation of what might have happened. It's like very CGI video game looking thing, but bad quality. And Stabler thinks Tisa and Alejandro are about to get busy when the perp jumps out of the closet. A fight ensues. Alejandro gets knocked out. Tisa grabs the gun, but the perp disarms her, assaults her, then shoots both of them to make it look like a murder-suicide. And Alejandro has no record, it turns out, but Tisa is a dancer at a taxi dance joint, Finn tells us. And taxi dance halls are places where dancers, usually women, called taxi dancers, are paid to dance with usually male patrons. And um, that's so that's where that came, comes from. Finn said this place has been busted twice for prostitution. It's called Empire Dance Academy, but it's not a dance school anymore because it was sold in 07. And Finn goes, no more tutus. Now it's tequila and tongue jobs. Love the alliteration. Put it in the Finn Quotes Hall of Fame. And the owner is Bridget Soloway, and she lives on Park Avenue. And Stabler goes, sounds like a new Mayflower Madam set sailed to town. So obviously I looked that up. The Mayflower Madam is a woman named Sydney Biddle Barrows, who was a New York City socialite who ran an escort agency under the name Sheila Devon. And the Post nicknamed her the Mayflower Madam. And I was looking it up and I don't think she got any jail time, this woman, but she has sw since switched occupations. Do you remember last night where I told you in my high school, there were two teachers that were married and their last name was Beef Tank? <laughs> I do. <laughs> I'm really glad you reminded me. <laughs> <laughs> Beef tank. It's so good. They were good people. Shout out. They still are. Um, Shout out. Not, you know, they could have gotten an evil streak. <laughs> Shout out to the Beef Tanks. So at the Soloway apartment, the door opens and who is standing there but star of Scream movies and the voice of Scooby-Doo, Matthew Lillard, 90s. Scooby-Doo. He's shaggy, you fool. Oh, oh my God. Sorry. Sorry, you're right. That doesn't make any sense that he'd be Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo, but doesn't even like fucking talk. <laughs> yeah, okay, let me go back. At the Soloway apartment- No, we're leaving it because no! it's funny. <laughs> okay, I meant Shaggy. I'm so tired. I just got off of a plane from doing a live show for you beautiful people, and I'm so tired, but I meant Shaggy. So it's Matthew Lillard, the voice of Shaggy, star of Scream, star of SLC Punk, star of all these movies from the 90s and beyond. He is so She's great. She's all that. And he's got a little boy swoopy haircut and a mustache. So you know he's weird right away. And at first he tells them there's no soliciting in this building. And when he realizes they're police, he straightens up and he's like, I'll see if she's available. Right then, down the stairs, walks entertainment legend Carol Burnett, just one of the most famous comedians and entertainers of all time. And she says she's always available for New York's finest. Well, I she mean, tells, speaking of bing, bang, bong, that's how I feel right now. Matthew <laughs> Lillard, Carol Burnett, just in our faces on the small screen. This is Neil Bear at his finest. Yes, absolutely. She tells Chet to scoot and tells Benson and Stabler to call her Birdie. I mean, that's the bong. If the bang and the bang is them, the bong is that the main character's name is Birdie. We love this woman. And... Benson compliments the apartment and Birdie calls it her little piece of heaven and she strokes Chet's cheek. So what's going on? Who are these people to each other? He says he'll get the martinis. 
Bertie explains that Chet is her nephew and he's very protective of her. They ask her about the dance school. She says it's her old ballet studio. She's a former dancer, singer, cabaret gal. She did it all. She asked her husband, Marv, to buy it for her so they wouldn't go out of business. And so Marv is the owner. In walks Marv and he goes, no, Bertie, you're the owner. And Marv is played, if you think he looks familiar, it's because he's played by Vincent Curatola, who you might recognize as a judge on SVU in more recent seasons. He's been on six episodes with white hair and he's a judge. Oh my God. Yeah. and he's I been can't on- believe I didn't notice that. Oh yeah. my God. And he's been on original and criminal intent. So he's a dick wolf baby for real. And he explains that he put the deed in her name because of liability. Like this guy's wearing a huge diamond watch. Like he's very New York's like cigar smoking, the kind of guy you'd think would own a lot of like um, buildings in New York. And he explains, uh, yeah, that it was because of liability. He says the ballet school's long gone. And she's like, Bertie's shocked. She's like, what? And he's like, yeah, the queen who ran it couldn't pay the rent. So he found someone who could. That his words, obviously not mine. And now it's called the Ballerina Room, which in Spanish is ballerina. And uh, so drink, that's the name of the episode, everybody. And Marv says, it's some crappy club that fills up with, quote, mostly border jumpers, end quote. Very cool guy, very cool guy. Bertie is shocked by Marv's racism. She seems very taken aback. The detectives explain why they're there, like, because someone was killed. And Marv's like, I own 30 buildings. I don't know who anyone is. The club opens after nine. You want to know about a murder? Go ask them. So now we're at the ballerina room and it is tiki, sort of Polynesian theme. The girls are wearing like grass skirts, lays, etc. And Benson and Stabler are talking to one of the dancers. And the girl is explaining to them that she's known Tisa for six months. And that's around how long she's worked there. Her grandma got sick, so she started working there to make extra money. And she's like, we dance with men, we sit with them, we talk to them. The guys here, quote, aren't good with girls. And it's like, yeah, this was before the term incel, I believe. So they pay by the minute just to hang out. And they're like, anybody ever do anything more? And she goes, some girls take guys back there and do more, but I'm no corner girl. And neither was Tisa. And Tisa did keep having problems with this one penguinito, she says, which is little penguin in Spanish, which Stabler translates. And then the girl goes, Well, that's funny because the restaurant I love in Brooklyn, El Penguino. Is that just the penguin, not little penguin? Yes, yes. The ito makes it diminutive. So yeah, the penguin and the little penguinito is like would be the that restaurant's little baby brother or son. And Penguins so are cute. Yeah. I hope I hope my phone hears this. They've been giving me a lot of orca and seal <laughs> content. So maybe yes. they can add penguins, please. <laughs> Orcas are having a moment for sure. So this girl goes, when she's talking about who's the penguinito, the girl goes, the Jews. And I think that's like kind of funny. That's what they call the Hasidic Jews who come in and they call the area where they hang out the South Pole. And then the camera pans to a bunch of like, Orthodox guys that are all in black and white, like leering at women. So it is like a cute little like nickname, the, the South Pole and the Penguinito. And then they're like, yeah, oh, in terms of words for Jews, Penguin, we'll yeah, take it. little Penguin, not that bad. Yeah, <laughs> we'll take it. They're like, oh, is her guy here? And uh, she says no. But then as she walks away, she sees him and goes, oh, there's there he is. There's Tisa's Penguinito. So Olivia approaches him and's like, you want to buy a dance? <laughs> She's not dressed with a lay on, but this man is like uh, buying it somehow, and he goes. I only dance with one girl. And then she's like, yeah, Tisa, right? And he goes, yeah, she's my girlfriend. And then they're like, we got to talk to you, buddy. And they walk him out. So that's the end of act one. 
In interrogation, this guy's like, I didn't kill her. I loved her. Like the usual blah, blah, blah. He's like, I even made her a picnic. Like, and this guy's name is Ephraim. And uh, Stabler lays it on him. He's like, you broke in. You wanted to surprise her, but she came home with Alejandro. And he's like, no, I was the only one who cared about Tisa. The customers tried to get her to do corner stuff, but she couldn't even complain because the head guy was the worst of all. And they're like, and who's that? And he goes, the guy who owns the building. Benson goes, ding dong, light bulb, bing, bang, bong. Let me guess. His name is Marv. And he goes, yes, you can't miss him. He's got a huge diamond watch. So, there we go. At the precinct, Cragen refers to Ephraim as the Lahayam lover boy. I mean, it doesn't stop in this episode. Benson and Stabler tell Cragen about Marv, but also that they looked into him and the guy is broke. He claims $27,000 in annual income, but he lives on Park Avenue. Like, what the fuck is up? The IRS has investigated him three times. They've never gotten him. Just then, Birdie and Chet walk in and she wants a word with Benson. So now in the interview room, Birdie is apologizing for Marv's boorish behavior earlier. And Benson asks if Chet ever has to protect her from Marv because she knows Chet's so protective. She says, not physically. And Chet's like, Birdie, come on. And then Birdie admits Marv drinks too much, but she can hold her own. She was married to four men before him after all. So... Birdie's on husband number five. She said when her father died, she had to fend for herself and she was a dancer dodging ass grabbing from producers so she knows what's up. She came in because she wants to pay for Tisa's funeral. She takes out her checkbook and a pen, but comments about how the the pen is all chewed up. It's like really disgusting. There's like teeth marks all over this like nice ballpoint pen and it's from Marv the pig. So obviously that's like putting steak in front of a dog. Liv like lights up and is like, oh my God, give me this pen. It's covered in like useful DNA that I need. And Birdie's like, I've got half a a mind to divorce this pig. And Liv says, at least Chet will always be there for you. And she goes, Chet, be a poodle and go get me a cup of tea. So he skedaddles. She tells Liv, Chet's not really her nephew. Her girlfriend was a rockette and got, you know, knocked up with Chet. She died when Chet was six and and so Birdie took him in and he's the only one who's ever really loved her. She said she's been married to a drug dealer, a pedophile, and the third one died after four days in a honeymoon boat storm which is crazy, was swept away from their honeymoon on a boat. And then a womanizer was her fourth husband. And now Marv. And and she goes, he was funny and charming when we first met. But, you know, obviously things have changed. So she said the night before she snuck into his office after he went to bed and found out that all his properties are strip clubs and peep joints. Like she had no idea. She had no clue he was lying about that. And she had never seen any suspicious behavior at all. So they leave and Benson sends that spit-soaked pen right to the lab. So now Benson and Stable show up at the Soloway apartment building and as they're walking away from their car, a woman looks up in the sky and screams as a body comes smashing down onto the car parked in front of theirs. And dun-dun, it's Marv. We get a big look at the diamond watch. That's it. Lights out for Marv. He doesn't own any buildings now. He is dead. So Chet opens the door to the apartment, all smiles, and goes, detectives, did you decide to try the martinis after all? Benson looks shocked. He's like, oh, Marv is in the study and Birdie has retired for the evening. So it's weird. It's like he has no idea what's going on. Benson goes upstairs and finds Birdie in bed, like lying in bed in silk pajamas, a turban and a martini. She looks amazing. And she's alone in the dark, just watching movies of herself dancing that are being projected onto the wall, like old black and white movies. And she goes, Birdie goes, you recognize her? 
she's who I used to be. And Benson and her just kind of share a long look. And then we cut to Chet comforting Bertie on the couch as the police process the scene. Marv didn't leave a note. It looks like Bertie says she didn't even speak to him that night and that she was planning on calling a divorce attorney in the morning. So the plot thickens. Chet says... He seemed normal. He came home, took his martini to the office, and he assumed he went to go do his thing. And his thing is looking at porn. Suddenly, Stucky has something. Wow. In the room where Marv jumped, quote unquote, his fingerprints prove that he was more likely pushed rather than he jumped on his own. Like they're not facing the right way. They're facing the way of somebody who was probably pushed backwards out the window. And Stucky's like, this just went from suicide to murder. Bing, bang, bong. So... In theory, Stucky's already learning a lot from Benson and Stabler and checking all of, dotting his I's and crossing his T's. And so he found, found finds this little break. So now at the precinct, Benson and Stabler are bringing Bertie and Chet in for some questions and paperwork. Craigan introduces himself and sends his condolences to Bertie on Marv's death. And then he asks different detectives to take each one of them. And Chet seems uneasy about being separated from Bertie. Craigan tells them that the earprint matches Marv. So that case is closed. Marv is the one who murdered Tisa and Alejandro and the neighbor guy by accident who's just dead and never gets to watch pay-per-view again. Cragen is skeptical about Marv being murdered. Um, he had a lot of drugs in his system. He could have given them to himself. And if we traumatize, we don't want to traumatize an already grieving widow if we're wrong. So Stabler goes to talk to Birdie. And she says, and we're in, in this next part, we're going back and forth between Stabler talking to Birdie and Benson talking to Chet. So Stabler is talking to Birdie and she says, Marv had no indication of being suicidal or depressed. He used to be more expressive when they first met, she said. He even wrote her poetry. But the last few years have, you know, not been great. Do you think Marv was jealous of Chet? And then we cut to Chet. He goes, jealous is one word to describe him, along with irrational, alcoholic, rageaholic, and porn addict. And they're like, okay, what about drugs? And Chet's like, well, Birdie might know about that. And then they go to Birdie and she goes, Lipitor, which is for cholesterol, Zantac, which is for heartburn, I think. And then doxepin, I think she said, which is an antidepressant or dioxepin or something like that. And she's like, and they go, oh, well, that's an antidepressant. And she goes, is it? And I remember Chet going through his medicine cabinet and just laughing at all the poisons the old man had to take. And that's what she calls them. And she explains the story about how her dad went to the hospital when she was nine years old for a routine kidney stone procedure and never came home. And she was left all alone. And this is where her distrust of doctors came from. She thinks they're well-paid murderers. She hasn't been to a doctor or touched a pill in 60 years. Wow. That's a long-ass time to not go to the doctor. Stabler goes, so you don't know if Marv was regularly taking tricyclics? And Bertie shuts his ass down and goes, what did I just say? I don't know any more than I've told you. And like, we're seeing kind of the meaner side of Bertie. Up to this point, she's been like a nice little old lady. So back to Chet. He says he and Bertie are soulmates. He says he takes care of her. And the last time he had to do that was two days ago when, when you and Stabler came by, referring to Olivia. That really set Marv off. He went, quote unquote, mental, slamming doors, sweating through his shirt. He started screaming at Bertie. Chet told him to leave her alone. Marv lunged at Chet like an animal and then he bolted for the door. So Liv tells him that Marv murdered two people, three people really. And he seems kind of shocked, even though he clearly thought this man was scum of the earth. And so Bertie is telling Stabler, I was married to this man for 11 years, uh, but he didn't know I was contemplating divorce. We slept in separate rooms because he snored. Okay. 
That's the beginning of the end. Stabler goes, and what about Chet? And she goes, Chet sleeps like a baby. And you're like, what? And Stabler's like, I meant, what did he think about Marv? And then we go back to Chet and he's like, I obviously hated that son of a bitch and he hated me. Was he threatened by your relationship with Birdie? Maybe he didn't like the nephew tagging along. And like, Chet's like, who cares what he thought? He's a murderer. Liv finally gets down to the creepy elephant in the room and goes, how special is your relationship? Like, y'all fucking or what? And Benson is right in Chet's face. Birdie said, Chet, and then we cut to Birdie. And Birdie goes, Chet was 18 when we first made love. Okay, so now we're getting to the bottom of it. These two are romantically connected. She says, our relationship has always been very intimate. He was a sensitive young man who needed guidance. I love him more than anyone I've ever known. And then she, they said, why not get married? And she goes, our age difference would strike some as unseemly. Plus, I loved all of my husbands until I found out what kind of men they really were. And she says, I'd do anything for Chet and he'd do anything for me. Like, kill your husband, Stabler asks. And then Stabler tells Birdie how Marv killed two people and she's not shocked. And she says, Chet could never hurt anyone. Now Olivia's bringing down the hammer. She goes, I think you drugged Marv and pushed his ass. He denies it. He sticks to his story that Marv Marv was surfing porn and then did jump. And Birdie tells Stabler that she never saw Marv that night. She was in her room. She doesn't even know if Marv drank that night. Chet is heating up fast. He is losing any sliver of chill he ever had. He's like, of course Marv drank that night. He drank every night. Benson is pushing him and Chet is breaking down. Birdie is denying that he did it to Stabler. Extreme close-ups of both of their faces, very stressed out. Chet wants to talk to Birdie, but Benson shuts that down. She tells Chet that Birdie's rolling on him. She pulls up the blinds and like we see Birdie having an animated conversation with uh, Stabler. And Benson's just like, look, she's just singing like a bird right now, telling all your secrets and he can't hear anything. But you know, Benson's telling him that she's spilling all the tea. Chet's crying. He's like, please let me go. And then he breaks down and says, Birdie did it. She killed him. I mean, obviously we're for justice. We're for Benson and Stabler, but like, fuck if the cops are really out there lying and acting. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, Chet, like, really taking advantage. Like, clearly, has, Chet has some problems. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. 18, really? Their relationship started at 18. Right I at bet 18. Before. Right at 18. And that's when most of the guys that we know that date younger girls, it starts right at 18. You just aren't attracted to them before that. That's the thing. It's like their 18th birthday, something happens. And then you're like, okay, now. It feels right. So yeah. I'm being very sarcastic in no, case you I are know. not. Not you. I'm saying the <laughs> listeners in case anyone thinks I'm being serious here. But yeah, I just, um, in this moment, I'm like, Benson, you bad girl. Wow. <laughs> yeah. You really are taking advantage of this little guy. But this who l- also is a freak. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, his little mustache and haircut, you know something is up with this man. So but yeah, his heart's broken, you know? Birdie's spilling the beans. Yes, totally. So he thinks. So he starts really, really spilling it. Like all the beans. The beans are all over the floor. He says he start and he starts banging his head against a filing cabinet, which is usually something Stabler does. So this guy's just taking care of it for him. And he tells Olivia, he made the martinis as usual. Birdie takes hers first. So he brought it into her. She asked him to get her old movies down because she likes to watch them when she's sad. When he came back, he saw the pill bottle by the martinis, but he didn't know what was up. So he just brought Marv his martini. Then Marv went to his office and Liv said to surf porn. But Chet goes, no, I lied about that. He was actually taking money out of the safe and all these documents and stuffing them into a duffel bag. So he told Birdie, Marv's on the run. And she and Marv started arguing really, really badly. Chet was in his room and he could hear them yelling. And then he said, 
Then Marv just stopped. And he said he came out and the window was wide open and he didn't do it, she did. Now we cut to Birdie and Liv is talking to her and Birdie says, I never touched Marv's drink. And Liv's like, well, bitch, Chet said you did and we got your fingerprints on the glass and his pill bottle. And Birdie says, Chet would never go against me. Bring him to me. And she starts calling out for Chet as they read her her rights. And then they walk her right past Chet in the bullpen and he says, I didn't want to tell them. They made me do it. And she says, we all do what we have to do, dear, and gives him this cold death stare and walks by. And so now we're in court where Robert Klein is Birdie's lawyer and Zosha Mamet is the judge. It's a star-studded episode. Well, no, 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 not Zosha Mamet. Did I say Zosha Mamet? I meant Zosha Mamet's mom. Yes. Zosha Mamet's mom is the judge. Robert Klein is Birdie's lawyer. Birdie I pleads. would love if teenage Zosha Mamet was the <laughs> was judge, like, though. You're all out of order. As Shoshana, <laughs> just like, um, you guys, I, uh, 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 <laughs> I'm not really stop. loving the vibe of this argument. <laughs> so Birdie pleads not guilty. Cabot asks for 500K in bail and Klein goes, 50, your honor, she's elderly. And then Birdie is like, I am not elderly and I will pay it. And the judge goes, ma'am, please speak through your attorney. And Birdie's like, I won't have him argue over money. It's vulgar. And then she goes, Chet, hand me my checkbook, which we've seen her do before. And it's like, uh-oh, Chet's not there anymore, babe. She like looks, she turns around, looks in the galley, like he's not there. So- she realizes she's all alone probably for the first time since Chet was 18 or whatever. Very veep. Yeah. Very yes. veep. If you no, know, you know. Yeah. No more bag man. And so her lawyer says they're going to pursue a affirmative offense of extreme emotional disturbance, claiming Marv was emotionally and physically abusive. And they're like, there's no documentation of his of this abuse. And they say she did disclose to Detective Benson. And Cabot goes, it sounds like she was teeing up her excuse. And Klein goes, this guy stalked and murdered another woman. Birdie was in mortal terror. And the judge says, tell it to the jury. Ms. Cabot, fire up your shrink. And I like that sentence. Ms. Cabot, fire up your shrink. Put it on a t-shirt for me. Cut to the interrogation room where Huang enters to talk to Birdie. She hates him immediately because he's a doctor. And it's like, he goes, oh yes, I know you don't like doctors. And she goes, it's not that I don't like them. I just find you useless. And then she says, She's like, this temperature makes my bones cold. Can we get the heat on or is this part of the Inquisition? He goes, this is a psychiatric assessment. Like, I'm not interrogating you. And she says, Marv was a hateful bastard. And Juan goes, yeah, but you never left. And she says, well, Chet was very protective of me. And she is emotional as she tells him that now she and Chet are estranged. She gets very irritated. She wants a new chair. She's like, this chair, I can't handle it. And she goes, we know where this goes. You come in here with your tests and questions and fake concerns, and I play the terrified wife cowering in the corner, but that's not who you are. And she says, no, I was terrified. Marv would have murdered me if I didn't murder him, but Bertie Sullaway does not cower. And her eye is twitching a little bit, and it kind of feels like you can't tell if she's winking or, or what's going on. She takes Huang's hand and says, so why don't you take your little assessment to your bosses and get me the fuck out of this awful room? I am obviously adding the fucks. Carol Burnett would never. Outside the room, Cabot is talking to Huang, and she's like, home run, my dude. She just admitted that the EDD defense is bullshit. And Wong is like, yeah, but she has some problems. Like, I see signs of a clear neurological disorder, like the body stiffness, the eye twitching, like loss of fine motor control. And Cabot's like, what, do you work for the defense now? And he goes, I'm obligated as a doctor to report this, and the woman needs tests done. And Liv goes, good luck. She hates doctors. And Wong goes, yeah, a lot of people do until they need one. 
So we see Birdie going into an MRI machine. And then, you know, immediately Huang has the results. And as he suspected, it is paraneoplastic syndrome. She has a cancer that probably started in her right lung and moved on to other organs. And certain tumors can secrete hormones that can cause unbalanced behavior. So that could have caused what happened. And even with aggressive chemo, she's got four to five months to live at most. Her lawyer is going to fill that with motions and continuances. She will never see trial. So now we cut to Huang giving Birdie the diagnosis. And he's like, yeah, over a dozen malignant tumors. And Birdie says, oh, I guess it's too late then. And she says, now you know why I never like doctors. And Huang's apologizing. He's like, I'm so sorry. And she says, no one ever said life was fair, only eventful. Another little Pinterest board quote for Birdie. And Huang gives her his number if she ever needs anything. And she goes, what do you think happens when this old circus folds its tents and moves on? Is there another town on the other side or is it all just a lot of nothing? And he's like, well, that's not exactly my specialty. And she says, she's been wondering it since her third husband, Philip, died in her arms and she saw the light go out in his eyes and she's curious what he was seeing. Liv's watching through the glass and she suddenly looks very shocked and suspicious, gooped and gagged, Birdie told her that Philip was swept off of the yacht on the honeymoon trip. So she never, there's no way she could have seen the light go out in his eyes if that story's true. So maybe Marv wasn't her first victim. So they go into Birdie's past. They find out Philip Goldberg was swept away at sea and the only witness was his new bride. That's husband um, number three. Husband number one accidentally overdosed. Husband number two slipped and fell down some stairs. Husband number four had brake failure. And then now Marv. So if this is true and she's some kind of black widow, this is a killing spree of over 40 years that no one ever put together. And the thing that's crazy is that insurance companies paid out on each of the guys, but none of the payouts were huge. Like, you know, and all the guys had a rap sheet. And so from little orphan ballerina to dirty Harriet in five easy steps. I forgot who said that. I think it was Finn. And so now in her lawyer's office, Birdie goes, yup, twas me. I killed them all. And she does very, she's very, uh, you know, Robert Durst from the jinx. She's like, of course I killed them all. She tells her, her lawyer tells her to shut up and then blames her failing health on why she's confessing to all these murders. She says, I really the world say of- that. They say that. They say, um, once you have a malignant tumor, you can't stop telling the truth. Yeah. Yeah. They say that. And um, she's like, I'm fucking Robin Hood. I'm Dexter. I rid the world of four, of five horrible men. Would you rather these five assholes still be alive? And they're like, well, what about due process? And she's like, I prefer justice. She goes, and in my case, it's been served, but I'm wondering if in, there's another murderer out there going free as a bird. Go back and check those insurance reports. I was two states away when the one husband fell down the stairs. And do you really think a little old lady knows how to fuck with brakes? Could it have been a young man doing anything his aunt asks him to do? So now we cut to Chet walking into Birdie's hospital room holding flowers. She goes, you came. And he goes, of course I did. She tells him she's not going to be okay this time. And he runs to her and lies on her chest and he's apologizing. And she says, it's too late for everything except for us. And he said, I thought you'd be mad at me for telling. And she says, oh no, I hope you're not mad at me. And he sits up for what? And she says, for what I made you do, helping me with Marv and all the others. And he says, you didn't make me. I wanted to help and I'd do it again. 
She says, don't say that. He says, but I would. I'd push 10 more of those bastards out the window if you asked me to. That's my Chet, she says, the only one who ever really loved me. I wish we could. And she's like, I wish we could fuck one more time. And he's like, uh, we can. He starts looking around like, I don't see any nurses, babe. Let's get going. And like this woman is dying in a hospital bed. And he's like, I can absolutely get it up. Let's get going. And she stops him and is like, there's not time. And he's like, what do you mean? She's like, because you're going on a little trip. Enter Benson, Sabler, Finn, and Cabot. 30 years at your Aunt Birdie's side and you never learn not to cross her. He looks so shocked and keeps saying, no, 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 as they haul him off. And she ends with, we all do what we have to. And then she just smells the flowers that Chet left for her and gives the squad a little half smile. And that's Dick Wolf, baby. Ooh, so good. So Such good. a good episode. Such a good app. Yeah, and she, she he should have known not to do that to her. Yeah, yeah. But it is wild, like the Black Widow thing, because there's all the Black Widow stories about women being gold diggers, but she was just like a woman who just kept marrying bad guys and then killing them. It was like she was doing a service. I kind of love her. kind of think she's <laughs> a hero. Birdie and Dexter, showtime. There's an idea. All right, well, the crimes are wild and I can't wait to get to them. So please stay tuned after a word from our sponsors. Listen, we're all SVU fans. We love a family drama. We love a mystery to solve. And you got to get hooked into a story with the details. You need the visuals. You need the storylines with the twists and the turns. And that is what June's Journey has and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young girl on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murderer. Dun, 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 dun. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. The game is filled with all these beautiful detailed scenes from the 20s, like lavish estates and gardens. And of course, little hidden clues are everywhere. There's twists, turns, catchy tunes. It all takes you deeper into this storyline. And if you play well enough, you can make it into the detective club. And there you can chat with other players and even compete with or against them, which is pretty exciting. And you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed. And can you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. Okay, love that. And guess what? It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. So there's two crimes. Um, the first one is about a woman named Betty Newmar, a.k.a. the Black Widow Granny, obviously. Um, so Betty Newmar was just a tiny little grandma with white hair. Um, she operated beauty shops, attended church, and raised money for charities. Very, you know, inconspicuous lady. Her husband died and nobody thought anything of it. But then North Carolina investigators in 2008 reopened a 25-year-old murder case and her secrets began to unravel. <laughs> so this woman, this little granny, she had five dead husbands in five states. 
Wow. Yeah. And the so this is like pretty close. I mean, it's really exciting. And I love this episode. So she had five husbands starting in the 1950s. So the first husband was Clarence Malone. He was killed in a shotgun blast to the head in Brunswick Hills Township in Ohio in 1970. But the couple had been divorced for 18 like years. So like for t- almost two decades, they weren't even together. They had been married multiple times to other people after that. But he was killed. Also, sadly, her first child, who took the last name of her second husband, but Gary Flynn took his own life with a shotgun in 1985 in Lake County's Perry Township, also in Ohio. But his family members were really skeptical of the suicide, and the mom, Betty, collected um, ten dollars to $20,000 from an insurance policy. And all of these ended in insurance policies. And it's kind of like Birdie. Not big payouts, but... yeah. You know, nothing to... Not nothing. (laughs) Not nothing. Not nothing. So then her stepson, after all this, Jeff, went to live with her after the divorce. But he ended up running away in a year because he feared for his safety. He said, like, once he started living with her, she got him fired from two jobs, soured his relationship with his girlfriend, and threatened to take out a $100,000 life insurance policy on him. So he fucking ran away from her. Um... (laughs) Then her second husband was James Flynn, who died in 1955, and very little is known about him. She she couldn't keep her story straight. That's what's, like, suspicious. So the death of her second husband is ranging from freezing to death inside of a truck in New York City to being shot to death on a pier. We really have no clue. And she okay. had a daughter with him named Peggy. Now, the third husband was Richard Sills, a Navy sailor who was shot to death in the 1960s. And as he and Newmar... like they were arguing inside their home near Key West, Florida. She told Navy authorities that he took his own life and it was ruled a suicide in 2008, but in an ME report that surfaced, it shows that he might've been shot twice, but they didn't want to exhume the body or pursue the case because the statute of limitations had expired, which I thought was weird because it's murder, but in Florida, there are limits to murder, of course. Of course, (laughs) of course. So if it's involuntary manslaughter or something like that, there are statute of limitations. Only first degree murder has no limits. But like, how did they know? Like, how did they know it was just not worth exhuming? You know, SVU detectives will just exhume on a dime. Yeah. So I'm like, fuck, why, you know, why won't you do it? Um, So then husband number four was shot six times in the couple's Norwood, North Carolina home in 1986. Um, The brother of this husband number four is the reason she kind of got caught. She met um, Harold Gentry. Um, You know, he was in the army and they got married January 19th, 1968. And she always lied about her past. And the story always changed. And they said that she was really a mean drunk and was verbally abusive and moody. And this uh, brother, Al Gentry, was just persistent as hell. And he knew something was up. And he spent more than 20 years trying to convince the police and prosecutors in Stanley County, North Carolina, that Newmar was behind the killing. He said that his brother told him right before he died, never trust that woman. She isn't who she says she is. And that's according to the Cleveland Metro. And then Al, in a BBC documentary called Black Widow Granny, is quoted saying, so she said that she was in Georgia during this killing. And so, but when she came home, so this is what the brother said. When she says I was in Augusta from that moment, I knew she was involved. If she had gotten out of the car with tears in her eyes and asked me why would anyone kill Harold, I would have never suspected her at all. So she returned from Georgia and they're like, your husband's murdered. And she just had no emotion at all. And was just like, well, I have an alibi. So 
I don't know what you want from me. And so that was very suspicious. And um, so that's when she was finally charged on three counts of solicitation to commit first-degree murder in the 1986 death of Harold Gentry, finally in 2008, after like so many decades of like this brother being like, you know, trust me. But in between the fourth husband murder and when she was finally charged, there was a fifth husband, final husband, John Newmar, and he died of sepsis in 2007 at a Veterans Affairs Medical Facility in Georgia, but also like sepsis is a blood disease, but can mimic that of arsenic poisoning. And the tests were inconclusive because, okay, so she was never seen as a suspect ever. And this final husband who died, the kids didn't know he was dead or had any idea he was sick until they read it in the obituaries. And then they (gasps) showed up to the funeral home and he was already cremated. Oh my God. And so they wanted like the cremation shit to be tested. But again, the tests were inconclusive and they couldn't tell if it was arsenic or anything from like ashes. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So in summary, I know this is like a lot of information. Um, So the first husband is Clarence Malone. They were married from um, 1950 to 1952. Remarried twice after the couple split and he was shot dead on November 27th, 1970 in Medina, Ohio. 20 years after their marriage ended. Then we have James A. Flynn, and they were married 1953, and then his death was 1955, and he was shot to death on a pier or frozen. Or maybe frozen. We don't know. <laughs> In New York, three years into their marriage. Then we have the third husband, Nellos Richard Sills, uh, married about 1956, and then his death was 1965. And he died from an alleged self-inflicted gunshot wound sustained during an argument the couple was having in their home. And that was nine years into their marriage. And it's so funny, like, if we were fighting and then why would I not shoot you? Like, why would I shoot me? Yeah. Um, Then the fourth husband, Thomas Harold Gentry, got married about 1968. His death was 1986. He was found dead in the couple's, you know, North Carolina home, shot multiple times, and they had spent 18 years together. He was shot six fucking times. And then finally, John Newmar, married 1991, death in 2007, and I guess apparent natural causes, sepsis, whatever, but like could be arsenic. Who fucking knows? And so she basically had history in North Carolina, Ohio, Florida, and Georgia. And these were all states that she was married in. And the arrest finally went down after a former police officer and two former neighbors came forward claiming that she tried to hire them to kill her husband, Harold Gentry, in the months before his 1986 murder. The theory for many police and prosecutors is that she was desperate for money and wanted to collect the insurance policies. But the trial kept getting moved um, for health reasons and lots of other reasons. And she got to leave prison on a $300,000 bond. And the kicker, she died in 2011 in Louisiana at a hospital at 79 years old of illness and took all her secrets to her grave. And she was never, she never stood trial for any of her crimes. Wow. She died before any style. Yeah. Um, she never stood trial and she was never convicted of any crimes, but that didn't stop the media calling her Black Widow Granny. You know what I mean? That's yeah. more fun. <laughs> yeah. And um, her two daughters, she has two daughters, Peggy and Kelly, and they do not believe their mom did anything wrong. So, you know, bad luck, a killer, or both. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Cool bitch, though. Very and cool. also, like, you know... What if she was a different color? What if, you know, she didn't, like, there's lots of things, like, what, you know, mm-hmm. like, 
why was no one ever suspicious of? But, you know, she did go from state to state. So that's, um, so that's the case of the Black Widow granny. Now, this case, have you ever heard of the Santee and Kenneth Kimes case? No. Okay. I can't believe we've never heard of it. I haven't either. This is one of the most wild cases I think we're ever going to cover and have covered. It is so exciting. And um, I'm on the edge of my little seat. I know. And a lot of this information came from this really long, um, in-depth Vanity Fair article. And of course, you know, to the New York Times and stuff. But, and there's, whatever. I can't wait to get into it. And (laughs) I was about to say, why haven't there been movies? But there have been. But it's shocking. We don't know about this. And it's New York. You know, all the New York stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So Saturday, July 4th, 1998. (gasps) Irene Silverman was seen alive for the last time that night. Irene was an 82-year-old extroverted woman who was the widow of a multimillionaire mortgage broker, Sam Silverman. She grew up in poverty and then married into wealth, and she had invited two friends to come eat at her mansion on Manhattan's, like, East 65th Street. So she was... She, yeah, she had an amazing like mansion town home um, worth millions. And so she always had company. She um, was well known for her giant parties. So moguls, TV people, royalty, academics, fashion people, and then also like butchers and carpenters um, that she hired. So a real mishmash of tons of different people, giant parties. But after her husband died in the 1980s, she stayed mostly at home and got like became really insular, but still had people over. And then she built apartments into the home home and she rented them out. So people that lived there were Daniel Day-Lewis. Whoa. Sha- yeah, Shaka Khan had rented these apartments and everyone loved her. One of her guests though fun- <laughs> said to Vanity Fair, she thought she was sharing it even though she was charging you. <laughs> but, you know, like she was very like welcoming, but she was charging people like I think six grand a night. I mean, a night, six grand a month. One tenant showed up on June 14th and asked to be a tenant, but he had no ID and no references but he did have six grand in cash. But it's like, lady, you're rich. And this is the disease of wealth because it's like, who cares? So he said he was um, a Palm Beach businessman named Manny Gurin. He said he got her name from Paul Vacari, who was the son of her longtime butcher, Rudy. So she was like, okay, and you have the cash, so fine. And as long as you bring your references tomorrow, you can stay here. But he obviously never never had any references. And he always reverted his face from the security cameras that she had installed. And so she didn't trust him. And friends say that she out loud was like, oh, I don't trust him. He didn't let the maids into his apartment. And he also had two friends that would visit often. And they also like turned away from the cameras. And it was a young man and an older woman. So after all of this like shadiness, just one week after Silverman's like, you need to leave. He did not leave. She cut off his phone service and began eviction proceedings, but she also wanted to keep the six grand. She didn't want to feel like she was cheated. And then she did not call the police. And then the night of July 4th, 1998, her dinner guest left around 12.30 a.m. And the morning of July 5th at 11, one of her maids saw Silverman outside her office in a dressing gown and slippers. And she sent her maid to walk the dog and do some errands. And then when the maid returned later that afternoon, the house was empty and there was no sign of Silverman. So the maid called the business manager who then called the police and the cops didn't see any sign of struggle, no traces of blood. And they ended up questioning employees, current and former tenants, friends, uh, but Gurren had disappeared. 
After two days, they realized this Manny Gurren did not even exist. That's not a real name. This person was a 23-year-old named Kenneth Kimes, and he was arrested with his 64-year-old mother, Santi, 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 whatever. She had lots of identities. Okay, so (laughs) Mama Kimes. um, And so they were arrested 7 p.m. on July 5th for stealing a Lincoln Town car from a dealer in Cedar City, Utah. They were taken in on 6th Ave and 54th Street. And it's just really wild. So an NYC detective was watching the TV report on Silverman's disappearance and realized that this Manny was Kenny. So within, yeah, so within hours, the cops realized that this mother and son they'd had in custody were two of the most wanted criminals in the country. Um, Santi Kimes is the daughter of an Oklahoma sex worker um, born with the name of Sandra Louise Walker in 1935. She grew up mostly in Vegas and she was getting arrested very early in life for petty theft and such. And she just loved to steal. She stole cars off the lot. She was arrested once in Washington um, with a stolen $6,500 mink coat. And it was just for fun. Like she she ended up marrying wealthy. She had tons of mink coats. She just loved crime. She just loved it. And this was amazing. So five years after she stole the coat and made all these excuses, she finally stood trial on July 18th, 1985. A jury finally convicted her of this theft of this mink coat. But she left town as the jury was deliberating and just walked out of the courthouse and got on a plane for California, which is so clever because the verdict was reversed several years later on the grounds that the defendant had not been present when the jury's verdict was announced. So she's not an idiot. She's like a really like masterful crime person. And so Santi Kimes is a widow of a wealthy California motel developer named Kenneth Kimes Sr. So she, like I said, married into money. He was very, very wealthy. Kenneth seemed a little nuts too. So while they were married, you know, they had millions and millions of dollars and just lived a life of like fucking crime and wildness. So this is, you will not even believe this. So they lived in Mexico City in 1985 together and they were arrested on slavery charges after some of the maids complained to authorities that they were beaten and imprisoned in the Kimes home. She made them work seven days a week under lock and key and without pay. And she ended up serving five years. So I guess that's what you get for slavery charges. The husband ended up only serving three years. And, you know, she was very charming, articulate, and they looked rich. And so she got away with a lot. But Kenneth Kareem Kimes, a.k.a. Kenny, was born March 24th, 1975. So this is the son. Kenny grew up with nannies. He was educated by private tutors because she refused to send him to school. Um, He's remembered by a bunch of neighbors as a timid boy that was not around other children. He was a little eccentric and a bit strange. And he was alone and dying to play with other kids. But the nannies had to pull him away when other children came to play because Santi told the other moms in the neighborhood that Kenny was a genius and she didn't want him mingling with their trash kids. Um, And he saw tons of fucked up shit. So like the maid said that like, you know, they were enslaved. And so he's been around all this since he was three years old. He saw all of this. Um, One maid testified that Santi had burned her with a hot iron, thrown one in a scalding hot shower, locked them in rooms for days at a time. And when they finally went into this home, they saw like there were all these padlocks on the outside door. So then Kenny was 11 at the time of the tri- the maid trial, um, the slave trial. <laughs> like, it's so wild. But when she was in prison, 
he's like quoted saying it was like the best years of his life. And his dad let him go to school and have friends. And he just like really didn't miss his mother at all. But of course she came back and did not appreciate that. And so like they moved around a bunch. She wanted him to herself with no friends and no one around him. And so he moved around a lot his whole childhood. They had a home in the Bahamas, Las Vegas, Honolulu, La Jolla, Santa Barbara. Like, I don't know why you need a home in La Jolla and Santa Barbara. (laughs) Very close, very close (laughs) together. Um, And he would send letters to his friends saying he hated his mom and wanted to kill her, but there was no way out. And then finally, he became a student of UFC in Santa Barbara, and he was like, finally going to be free, but he was forced to drop out in 1996 because his mother urged him to do it. And like one of the uh, people in the dorm said that when she would come to visit the son, they would sleep in the same bed together. Oof. And so daddy, the dad, um, Mr. Kimes, uh, he died of quote-unquote, natural causes in 1994. Um, And so then it became all about the son and the mom, and people in their orbit started disappearing. So, um, and the death of the father was, like, what, like, set in motion all these events to get, like, to all the murdering and getting caught because Kenneth died, and he left her nothing in his will. Wow. He left all of his money to his children from his first marriage. And she did not like that. So she started scheming immediately, forging documents and doing things with social security numbers and legit kept the husband's death a secret from his heirs for nearly two years. She didn't want to lose her wealth. So she's like, fine, I'll fucking steal it. And she gutted the estate. There was almost nothing left. And he was worth like tens of millions of dollars, like real estate, motel developer. And with his dead dad, he had nobody to shield from his mother's influence. So now she had like full control over him. And anybody that didn't do what she wanted went missing. Or their places of business were burnt in flames. So there was a lot of arson, a lot of homes burning, and a lot of people disappearing. So yeah, they uh, burnt their own homes too. So this guy, Elmer Holmgren, a Kimes associate who had worked with Santi, one night confessed to a friend that he set fires for her and got money um, for the fires. And that news spread to agents in the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. I don't really know what what that has to do with arson. Yeah, have, the ATF. Okay. No clue. But this dude became ended up becoming an informant for the tobacco alcohol firearm crew. Then he ended up taking a vacation. Everyone knew and he went to Costa Rica with the Kimes mother-son duo. And no one, he was never seen after that trip in February 1991. Oh my God. And so the FBI was tracking them for months when they were arrested in New York City. A police expert describes them to Vanity Fair as expert, violent, and icy cold criminals. Susan King, a former Justice Department prosecutor, said that she, that she is very, she is really scary. And that was in Vanity Fair, according, you know, the Santi woman. And a Kimes family member said, she is not afraid of anyone, not afraid of anything. She is brilliant. She doesn't do anything without having a plot. And she has an extraordinary mind and she has no limits. And a relative Damn. quoted saying that Kenny has a duplicate mind of hers. He doesn't know right from wrong. And she warped him. So police, so, you know, the FBI is searching for them. And not only that, police were looking for them in Florida for check fraud and auto theft. Police in Nevada were looking for them for suspected arson and insurance fraud. 
LA police wanted them for questioning in the murder of David Kadzen, a 63-year-old businessman who was found in a dumpster near LAX, March 14, 1998. He was shot in the head. Cops in the Bahamas had been looking for them in connection with the disappearance of a banker who had been missing since 1996 and was last seen eating dinner with Santi. So they figured out, like, they were tracking her for months and they, she was planning this. The plot included cheap disguises, false identities, tap telephones, forged deeds, stolen credit cards, and at least three fake offers of Caribbean vacations. Oh my <laughs> God. Okay, so now back to, I mean, you know, Silverman and the townhouse and we're back in New York City. But like, so they're arrested and then the FBI, they get all of these other people that are like, we've been searching for this couple in all these other states. So they're believed to commit a, have committed the crime around 11.30 a.m. and 12.30 p.m. on July 5th outside of her office. They suffocated her, wrapped her body in pl- a plastic tarp or shower curtain, loaded her into the trunk of the Lincoln Town car that they had stolen from, like, Utah. Authorities said that Kenneth strangled her and then she helped her son dispose of the body. And then they killed her to steal her town home worth $10 million. But she was way too popular for that. Like, that's yeah. a big mistake. <laughs> like, you want to do losers or people that are hated, don't have a social life. Like, not a beloved woman that has celebrities and diplomats and everyone in the neighborhood socializing with her. Like, and also, how do you steal a townhouse for $10 million? Like, sign it over to yourself? There's like a lot of paperwork involved with oh, the honey, transfer of real estate. She did all of that paperwork. Okay. She did all of it. So, but whatever. So in the car, they found an ID belonging to Silverman. They found power of attorney forms with Silverman's forged signatures social security cards in her name, a Glock 9-millimeter handgun, a stun gun, a box of .22 caliber rounds, plastic handcuffs, two packages of syringes, and then a sedative hypnotic that is 10 times more powerful than Valium called flunitrazepam. Mm-hmm. Do you know this? You know no. this pill? Okay. Santi um, Kimes also checked a bag at the Plaza Hotel, and inside the bag was a notarized deed with a Silverman's forged signature, transferring ownership of her mansion to Atlantis Group, LTD, which was a shell corporation. Oh my God, she did all the paperwork. But what they could not find was the body. No witnesses, no forensic evidence, and her body was never found to this day. Wow, how do these people know how to make people disappear like this? I mean, the prosecutors relied heavily on the 14 notebooks full of detailed plotting, including Silverman's schedule and a list of items to gather. So March 2000, the testimony finally begins as uh, Kenny and Santi Kimes were charged with the murder of Irene Silverman. Their lawyer was Michael Hardy, who is best known as Al Sharpton's lawyer, who legit was like, there is no evidence here. <laughs> like, this is so fucked. But he was actually Sharpton's lawyer during a crime that Kara covered on this podcast, um, which was a libel case stemming from the um, Tawana Brawley case. So yeah. if you want to go back and listen to that episode, you can. December 2000, the pretrial finally begins. And the New York Times says it was a raucous trial. <laughs> the bitch was passing notes and making calls to the media like Lisa Renna. The judge, <laughs> the judge was pissed. Um, they were also supposed to sit, like the, the mom and son were supposed to sit at least one seat with like apart from each other with a lawyer in between. But anytime a lawyer got up, they would leave the table and Kenny would lean towards his mommy and outstretch his hand to her and they would whisper to each other and smile. And the guards had to continuously make sure they weren't touching each other and whispering. Like they could not stop oh my God. touching and whispering no matter how often they got yelled at in the court. 
They did an interview with 60 Minutes that was like really strange and creepy. And um, he like talked about how physically beautiful his mother is. One of their lawyers said after the arrest, according to Vanity Fair, that there is something other than mother and son which I think we all got. Yeah. <laughs> Mrs. Kimes did not testify, though, because the judge ruled that the prosecutors can bring up her former convictions for enslaving a group of Mexicans in 1986. <laughs> so she decided to stay off the, off the stand. They were found guilty on 118 counts, including murder, burglary, and robbery. The boy Kimes was sentenced to 126 years in prison. <sighs> wow. She was sentenced to 120 years. Then also, they were convicted of a second killing with the death of the Las Vegas property holder of David J. Kadzen. The judge who presided at the Kadzen trial joined the brigade of people to call her one of the most evil individuals she has ever met. Wow. Um, and this person spent 16 years on the bench. Santi died in her prison cell in May 2014 at Westchester County, New York, and she was 79 years old. Kenny is still serving a life sentence at the Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego. He did um, try confessing to dumping the body as a ploy to get out of solitary confinement, but that story and plan didn't really pan out for him because during his jail time, he took a TV reporter hostage during a prison interview oh and, got a, <laughs> and got an eight-year solitary confinement penalty for that. So, um, yeah, he was doing a court TV report and then he held her hostage for four hours holding a pen to her neck. Oh, my God. Her name is Maria Zone. She was 35 and she was a freelance producer for a documentary series called Crime Stories. His demand was that his mother not be extradited to California where they both faced the death penalty on charges from killing Kadzen. They were, however, extradited. It did not help. And then I don't think this hostage situation helped him. And they were eventually, like I said, convicted for Kadzen's murder. And they killed him because he was about to expose their scheme to take a $280,000 loan in his name. She wanted to shield the home as an asset from a pending civil lawsuit related to the enslaved maids. So according to the transcript of the 2002 grand jury hearing the case, she took out a $280,000 loan in December of 1997 and forged Kadzen's name on the application. She then pocketed the cash, signed over the ownership of the home to another associate of hers, got it insured for $500,000 with, and then the policy was only nine days old and then the house burned to the ground. Wow. The fork in the plan happened when the bank accidentally mailed the documents to Kadzen's address. And so then he contacted the bank and said the, the, the signature on the application was phony. March 13th, 1998, Sean Little was a drifter who, you know, the mother and son had recruited to work for them. And they, you know, visited Kadzen and the drifter waited outside and he testified he heard a pop. And then when he went in, he saw this man dying on the floor. And then um, following Kenny's instructions, he helped wrap the body in plastic, stuff in the back of Kadzen's Jaguar. They caravanned with Kenny to the LAX dumpster where his body was eventually found. And then like a little twisted, a little extra is that after they dumped the body, he went and spent $100, bought flowers for his mother, came home, gave her a kiss and gave her flowers. Jesus. So then in prison, in an interview, he did finally um, confess to the crime of Silverman. Um you know, he said that he wrapped her body with duct tape, garbage bags, stuffed her into a duffel, placed it in the trunk of the car, and then dumped her in an excavation hole in a town whose name he can't remember. Wow. Um, he's like, maybe if you take me out of solitary, I can help you. Like, it's it's a mess. Yeah. Um, 
it's like, but, you know, was he abused and controlled into these crimes? Did he love the crimes? Was solitary confinement really fucking him up? Like, we really don't know, but he seems pretty evil with the mom. I don't know. So he did end up pleading guilty and implicating his mother, and that was to save his life so he wouldn't get a death sentence. And then Kent Walker is Santi's oldest son, and he wrote a book called Son of a Grifter, if you'd like to know more about this twisted tale. And he's quoted in the Times saying that Kenny and Santi were both greedy, desperate, and delusional. And there's also a TV movie called Like Mother, Like Son, where it's Mary Tyler Moore plays Santi. Oh, my How God. How wild. Uh, wild. It reminds me a little bit, without the um, incest part that's probably true of this, it reminds me a little bit of the mother and daughter in design, where, like, she was, like, just taught her how to be a criminal forever and was, like, you know, just take everything. Wow. Fucked up. I'm so surprised I didn't know about this. No, they're like probably the most notorious. They're so notorious and I can't believe that it's not like, maybe it was huge during the time, but the fact that we really, I've never even had a whiff of this is like Yeah, it's like from the 90s, 80s and 90s, these crimes. It's not that like old. That's so wild. Oh my God. Thank you for all of the info, the granny, the mother's son, so many good crimes here. I mean, obviously- Horrible for the people who lost their lives to these greedy, evil people. But this is wild. We have a killer guest for you guys. A guest of a lifetime. I made that song up, so no copyright. (laughs) We'll be right back. I just want to give a quick disclaimer before we introduce our guest that this interview was pre-taped. It was taped before we knew about the SAG strike, which we, as both members of SAG, Lisa and I are, we fully and wholeheartedly support. So just in case anyone's wondering, no one is going against strike rules with this conversation and just wanted to give you guys that heads up. Guys, our guest today is... 90s royalty, to put it mildly. He is in some of the most iconic movies of the decade. Scream, Hackers, She's All That, SLC Punk, Serial Mom. Plus, he is Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. And you know him today as the murderous man-child motherfucker Chet. Guys, please enjoy the conversation that we enjoyed so much with Matthew Lillard. This is thrilling. This is a real get. We really it, didn't know. Yes. yes. We're so we, excited oh, to have you. Dying. I'm going to let you down every step of the way. I promise <laughs> you that. No, so, this is such a good episode of SVU. You're so good in it. And, um, you know, this. yeah, we're really excited. Yeah. But. And I was really happy when I heard that you were gaming with my husband. And then I was like, oh, do you think you can ask him? And I was really excited that you were down to do this. So thank well, you so much. Well, let's just be honest, honest uh, to the viewing public or the listening public. The reason I'm here is your husband is such a dreamboat. <laughs> That I am here just to get in his good graces. That's how much I adore your husband. Oh, that's so sweet. Was he leading the fantasy game? He was leading the fantasy game. He's very good at it. He's very good at it. And he he just, um, it was one of those, and this is God's honest truth. He um, was playing with Ross Bryant, who's also very talented. Yeah. And... Um, I, at some point I realized I'm getting very old because these kids are incredible. <laughs> and there, as a young person, I would have always tried to keep up with them, but they were so gifted. I literally just was like watching them work. He's truly remarkable. And I'm not 
you think I'm making a joke, but he's actually that incredible. So, the, well, I think it's like because he's so pat, he is passionate about it, you know. So, like, I think it's it shows. There's a lot of people who are passionate about it who aren't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But have you been playing like D and D and all these games for a really long time? And you I have, it. yeah. I'm uh, I'm 53 years old, and I started playing at 10. Um, I started replaying again in acting school at 21, and I've been playing with the same group of friends since then. Um, and we started a company called Beetle and Grimms five years ago. We make high end box editions for Dungeons and Dragons and Pathfinder and Critical Role and all kinds of IP coming out in 2024 that we're working with. Um, and one of the things that we did is we sold this TV show idea called Faster Purple Worm Kill Kill. And, and so we just went out and did 20 episodes of TV and that was a, a hoot. And it's just been like one of, you know, it's a thing where you're like in your career, there are things you're like, oh, this is going to make a big deal in my life. And this is going to change my career. Like Scooby-Doo is going to be this life changer. And the reality is that it's never the thing you think it is going to be the, you know, it's never the thing that you think is going to make the big impact that does. It's always the little things. And that these 20 episodes of TV for Dungeons and Dragons, Faster Purple and Kill Kill is, um, I think it's going to be a big deal. And I'm really excited because it's, you know, it's, it's something that sort of we came up with and followed and sold it and did it. And it's better than we ever could have possibly imagined. And so we're really excited. Wait, but before you mentioned something, I actually had this question where I was going to ask, like, did you know Scooby-Doo was going to be such a giant part of your life? And you didn't. No, I mean, I, so Scooby-Doo, you know, sort of the cycle of Scooby-Doo was, I thought it was the biggest job of my life. Uh, It was, by the way, if I didn't have that job, I would for sure be teaching acting somewhere back in Michigan or, you know, somewhere else. Because I, I, you know, I I did Scooby-Doo 1, I did Scooby-Doo 2, and I'm like, oh, I'm super famous. Look how huge I am. Look how much money I made. I'm never going to fail, you know, because I'm, look, I just crushed it. Uh, Cut to, I don't work for two years and have this whole epiphany of like, oh, I think I'm the shit. And the reality is I'm just not. I'm I'm just another working class actor that got lucky and got a job. And so I sort of had to restructure the way I looked at my career. Like I restructured how we lived our lives. Um, you know, my wife and I were like, okay, it's not always going to be this like, you know, direct road up. And it had been for a long time. I mean, I had done a lot of movies. I'm like, I just always assumed I'd be successful. And the reality was that Scooby-Doo 1 and 2, certainly 2 was panned and sort of eviscerated. And so, and, and I had sold out any credibility I had in the indie world doing this huge, you know, big shiny movie that quote unquote sucked. I think the movie was lovely, but you know, it just didn't do well. And so, you know, for me, that movie, like for a long time, I wore that movie like this, this badge of shame because I was like, oh my God, it really put me back. Where would I have been? And I don't really, I am not one of those actors that like deeply considers moves left and right. I'm like, look, how do, how do I find joy? How do I keep working? How do I spend the rest of my life as an artist? Um, and those are sort of the parameters. Like, do I have to feed my kids? Yes or no? And is it going to bring me, am I going to be happy? And will it, you know, continue my path to being an actor for the rest of my life? So, you know, so that movie came along and I really started for the first time ever consider, well, I had made a mistake. I had really jumped, you know, into something that ended up backfiring. And every time somebody like, oh, look, there's Shaggy. I'd be like, you know, I would, I would die a little on the inside. And, you know, cut to like my kids were in like second grade and, and, um, 
you know, they, they came to me and said, look, Casey Kasem, who's the original voice of Shaggy, is getting, you know, he's getting up there in age and we'd like to offer you the opportunity to come in and replace the voice. And I had said when I did the movie, it's like when Casey's done, I would love to carry on the, you know, the mantle of that part. And so long and the short of it is that, you know, I uh, have been doing the voice now for 14 years, 15 years. Um, and it's just, that is a treasure because I could see a kid somewhere and I can do this stupid voice. Uh, not the stupid voice, but I can do this voice super easily and make somebody's day a lot brighter. And the idea of being able to carry forth the mantle of this iconic character and like hold space for him and really honor what Casey created and what that legacy of the show is. Um, what ended up being this like albatross has become this like, you know, this badge of pride in my career. So, you know, it's, it's always the, you know, I always think that as artists, as actors, we are always trying to figure out next step and what am I going to do in my life? And it's just, you just never, there is no answer. Right. And there's no one way about it. And reality is like, you know, how do you, it just has to come back to what's important. And to me, what's become important over time, certainly now I came in is finding joy, finding community, like being excited about the things I do. Um, yeah. And so that, that's definitely been a whole curve. You know, my first job was 22 years old. And like I said, I'm 53. So I've yet to go back to waiting tables, but it's only a matter of time. Let's be <laughs> now you're shaggy only, now. Yeah, now, now you're shaggy. Yeah, I, can, I can live on just the shaggy. Yeah. Is it, so it is easy for you to do the voice? You can just drop in. Thanks. Like, man. <laughs> <laughs> So fun. Oh my yes. God. That's, um, fun. that's amazing. So, okay. So let's get into this, a little bit of the SVU of it all, because there are, you were talking about your first jobs. I have so many questions about other parts of your career that we need to get to, but let's bang out the SVU stuff first. Um, yeah. so like, how does this part come about? You get, you get an offer that's like, we want you to play this weird character or, you yeah. know, it's Carol Burnett. What happens? Like what? So, yeah. So it's interesting. So I, I started as Literally, as a half hour, I pushed this back a half hour. I grabbed a cup of coffee and I started thinking about, oh my God, what am I going to talk about? <laughs> and there's a couple of things that sort of stand out for me in this moment, which I didn't think about before my cup of coffee. But, you know, it is funny that, so Mariska and I had done a, we somehow we got invited to, this is kind of a long story, but I'll go fast. But we had gotten invited to this high school on sort of, I think like the Lower East Side. And you could tell it was not a, it wasn't like a great school at the time. And this is back, oh my God, I mean, 2000, early aughts, right? Sometime in there. And she and I were assigned in the same classroom. And our idea was to see these kids do these parts they had written, right? And, and give them notes, like sort of be the professional actors and give these young, these young kids uh, notes on their performance. And I'll never forget like, Mushka obviously was very famous and I was deferring to her in every aspect of being in this room because SVU was already popular and she was obviously a star. And, you know, she was applying very good acting notes to these kids that were like teenagers, right? And there was a moment where I was like, hey, can, can I say something? And this one kid was struggling with the words, right? And she had written this poem about having to cross the street. I don't really remember what it was about, but something about having to cross the street because she didn't feel safe on the side of the street where the other, the African-American young girl, where the other people 
probably felt the same about her that she felt about them. And I went out there and I have this whole theory about acting that is deeply rooted in me, which is about energy, which is about like, you have to be an energy for people to feel things. And I just said, like, if you could say anything to those people, what would it be? And she said something like, screw you. I'm like, screw you? Wouldn't you use a different word? Like, what? She was like, started giggling the whole class. I'm like, what happened if you used the F word? And she's like, you know, and she screams the F word. And then I'm like, yell it again. Now punch the air. Now do the poem. And now the poem became alive because she was in energy, right? She had like expressed this stuff. She punched the air and the bah, came out of her like this well of like power. And at the end of it, she started crying and the class started crying. And Mariska and I were like, boom, like that was super amazing. And so, and it was a great moment. It was just a lovely moment. And at the end of that, she and I, she was like, that, that was awesome. And so like a, a couple of years later, I get this offer. And my agent said, it definitely come from the people on the set had wanted me to come to this job. And so I take the job and um, it's, so there's this scene in the, in the show where, um, where, What's the character? What character do I play? Chip? Chet. Is that Chet. 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 Okay. So there's a scene in the show. And it's like, I've now been on set like three or four days. And I like set. And I like people. And so like I'm like a big ball of energy on set. So we, we get to like a Friday. And they have this scene in this, in, in this scene where Chet ends up breaking down. And none of that's in the slug line of the script at all, right? And so the director's like, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. It brings in everyone. It's like, this is the scene. We're going to do this. And then here's the scene. And we're going through. And then he comes to the part where, like, Chet breaks down. But it's, that doesn't say break down. So he comes to the scene. He comes to part. We come to this part of the scene. And then he says really dramatically, whatever happens here happens. And then he continues on to tell what happens in the rest of the scene. And then so, you know, and then we do this rehearsal. It's like, I don't want to go over that part. Don't go over that part. Whatever happens in that moment happens in that moment. Now, I'm reading the script going, Chet is like, screw, he's like a perp. So he's like, screw you, copper. Like, he's got that energy, like a big FU energy. And he keeps like building this, like, whatever happens, happens in this moment. <laughs> And I was like, you know, and I, I know that he is now leaning towards this sort of emotional epiphany. And Mariska comes in to rehearsal and she ended up for some reason showing up a little late. I think she was doing a producer meeting or something and she shows up and then he gets to this moment. He's like, hey, Mariska, this is what we came up with. Like we do the scenes like, all right, stop. Don't do anything there. Just let it happen in the moment. What happens in that moment? And I was like, I, we have to stop. I, you have to stop. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what your expectation. You're dancing around something and we're on different pages. Like my thing is like, he's a perp. And that age, whatever I was, like 40 or something, I don't even know. I don't what year was it? Do you guys oh, know? Oh, nine. It came out in March of 09. All right. So I'm 39 years old, right? We get to this. I've never told this story, by the way. I don't think I've told it to acting students at some point. So we get to this moment and I'm 39 years old. 39-year-old Matt is like, I am not doing dramatic. I'm not, like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I don't understand this epiphany you're looking for. And Mariska leaned over and she said, do you remember what you did to that the young woman in that classroom? I'm like, yeah. She goes, you have to do that here. This is like 
him being left by his mother, being betrayed by Carol Burnett. It's like him being left by his mother. And I was like, oh my God. So I get relegated back to my dressing room. I mean, of course, now in my dressing room for like six hours. And in that time, I am trying to manufacture this drama in my life, these tears in my life. And at this point in my life, I had like muscled tears, but it was only after I beat the crap out of myself for like hours, right? I had to say things to my dad out loud and then things would come up like SLC punk. I ended up losing my mind, but I had all these things I had to tell my dad first. It was like this just violating my own vessel. And I sat in that room and I realized in that moment that I didn't have technique to dig in and let all this stuff happen. So I got on set. I muscled it through. um, And it ended up being fine. But the interesting thing is, well, the interesting thing is that from that point on, I then started to teach. And in my teaching, I taught that. I taught the technique of, I always had this thing about energy, like being in energy is things that you are drawn to watching. People in energy are drawn to watch. It's, it's, it's animalistic. But to find that part of you and find a way to let, unlock your emotions in an authentic way, not a faking way, is what I learned after that because I never wanted to be in a dressing room for six hours again trying to muscle um, real emotion. It I mean, was better than fine, though. It was a yeah. good scene. It's a very memorable scene. She's, like, badgering you, and you start crying. Like, I can't believe... I, I, I Honestly, I don't know if I've ever... I don't even know if I've ever seen the episode. Oh, you gotta watch it. You're so... You gotta watch it. It really... I don't think you realize how well it turned out, because yeah. your character is, like, like, simple, kind of. Like, he's kind of a simpleton, but he's not, like... I don't know... you just played it really well of like, is this guy like having a full, because you don't know like what his mental capacity, like state is really. And he was so hurt. He's a piece of ass. He's a piece of ass. I do remember the mustache. I will get a a meme of that mustache like every like six days. Somebody be like, what was this? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the hair and mustache, was that just hair and makeup? Or did you um, come in with that idea too? I came in with the mustache. I must have had a goatee or something. And I shaved because I was like, clearly he has a terrible mustache. And I got made. And my whole thing is that at that point, I was like, I never really done TV. And so, like, if I'm doing TV, I'm going to go have fun. I'm going to do shit that's going to be fun. Um, and so I, that's why I made a lot of those sort of weird, like, no, I do think that sometimes with left of my own devices, I make horrible choices. No, <laughs> and I, I have a feeling I, you have like the best facial acting of anybody. It's the faces terrible. that you make are so good. And I rewatched Scream it's last terrible. night too. And it's like, you make such good faces. I think that that's the worst thing you could say to an actor. No <laughs> your, way. Your face. Well, here's the good. Th- here's the funny thing is. Well, because it makes never... sense with the energy. You're talking about the energy, and like you. Um, n- now that you mentioned that, like seeing your physicality in the parts you play, it makes sense that you're so yes. um, forward with energy. Yes, and when I was 
39 or whatever old I was when I did Scream, like zero ability to sort of know when to be in energy and when to like just be in energy, but not chew every ounce of the scenery around me. Right. I mean, you watch Scream and you see a, a, you see a young man like making people happy on set and dancing as hard as he could and packing everything he could into every moment, which I don't think serves, you know, an actor all the time, but whatever, that's where I was at the moment. Like that's the kid I was. And I don't, and I love that boy. He was lovely and he got me to where I am today. But, you know, I watched that. I'm like, oh my God, what was I doing? It's so So, interesting to hear like um, the inside and outside perspective of stuff. I'm like, such iconic performances. And you're like, nah. (laughs) Well, no, not, I mean, listen, I don't know if they're iconic performances, (laughs) but they are, listen, I definitely, look, and I, and I adore them. I mean, I watch Scream and I adore it. I, I adore SLC Punk. I mean, I love watching sort of this unbridled exuberance and passion when I was this, you know, this 20 something year old kid. I mean, you know, it's just the boy you are then is not the man you become. Thank God. And if I'd stayed that, I would have, God, who knows who I'd be right now. I'd be horrible. But there was like a humbling moment. I had this humbling moment in the middle of my life that sort of changed everything. And, and around that sort of like, oh, I can't keep being this thing I think I am was around this show. And, you know, after the show, I came, I started teaching actively. I'm like, how am I going to feed my kids? If I never act again, if I am now just, I didn't want to be guest stars for the rest of my life because being a guest star is like being, you know, it's, it's like being a visitor at somebody's Thanksgiving dinner. Everyone knows each other. Everyone wants to go home. Like everyone's on their own rhythm and you come in and like, nobody cares that you're there. They want you to hit your mark, do your job and say the right lines. And they, everyone wants to be home for dinner. Like nobody's worried about work. And I mean, that's not to disparage any show I've ever been on. I've always been treated lovely, but you know, people, if you have a nine to five job, like you have a different approach if you're like a contractor who shows up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, I was like, I never want to do this again because I, it, felt, it just felt like I wanted people to be like, yeah, you were great. And like, they're on to the next, like the next episode shooting the day you wrap or the halfway through the, you know, the last day you work. So, and one of the other great things about that show is real quick is that Carol Burnett was such a gift of a human being that, and I'll never forget, I sat there with Ice T and Carol Burnett, and we listened to Carol Burnett tell stories for four hours. Oh my God. About the, the Carol Burnett show, about um, losing her daughter, you know, her daughter had passed away, about being around with, you know, back in the 70s and 80s when she was the single biggest one of the biggest stars in the world and a woman um, was sort of un, like, nope, like talking about the writing process and how they did the show. And that was, that was the, without a doubt, the best part of that show was this idea of getting to sit at the knee of a legend and, and, and having her share. I feel like so much these days, so many people share in this idea of like being, a, having it be about them in a way that's like, I want, you know, I want you to know I'm somebody special. 
that sitting at her knee was like listening to this person talk about her history, you know, and in such an iconic and profound way. That was without a doubt the best part about it. But that's so great that you got to spend that like extra time with Carol Burnett. We, that was obviously a huge question we were going to ask you. It was like, how was working with her? Because you guys got to do so much like, I don't know, what a strange Touching. relationship. <laughs> yeah. It's like, they you they told she tells people that you're her nie- nephew. But then we find out later that really she just took you in as like an orphan and kind of raised you as a mom. But then now you have a sexual relationship. So it was definitely a lot of twists. Did they keep the kiss in the episode? I don't think they did. Mm -mm. I suggested that he kiss her at the end of the episode, right before he gets arrested. Right, he walks, I think he walks into her bedroom or something? Yeah, he goes to see her in the hospital. In the hospital. And he goes in to kiss her and that's when he gets arrested. Yeah, that twist is so good. I love that she sets you up. Yeah. Because even though you did the crimes, I do feel bad for Chet, you know? What did he do again? I don't remember what he did. He helped kill all a bunch of her husbands. Like, well, so she raised him to kind of be a henchman. So says too. you. You don't know that. <laughs> yeah. That's you don't have, you have no proof. <laughs> I know. I Slander. hope Chet gets out. I hope he gets out. Um, I also, I wanted to ask you, um, a lot of your roles are so varied. When someone comes to approach you, can you tell what they recognize you from? Um, yeah, <laughs> sort of. I mean, I do think, like, I always think that there are there there are things in my life that... The interesting thing about my career, I think, is that I've been in a lot of things that that find people when they needed it most, or they find it finds people that that identify with that, right? So SLC Punk is something that if if you... If SLC Punk had a, that was a seminal movie in your life, you and you see me, you will come up and say something because that movie speaks to the outsider. Like the thing about Scooby Doo is that you know kids grew up with it for so long; it's such a profound memory for those kids. They will come up to you, and think, "Oh my God, Scooby Doo!" And Scooby Doo is way more popular now than it ever was when it came out. And I, I think it's just because like DVDs went out. And Scooby-Doo 2 was like the last DVD anyone bought and it just stuck in the back of a minivan for like 10 years and that's the only movie you could watch. Uh, and then Scream was like, you know, it, it has this place in horror that... But, you know, look, to, you know, I mean, people love... Bo- I mean, people, people, you have no idea how people find you. You're just happy that they recognize you from something to some capacity. You know what I mean? One of my yeah. favorites is She's All That. She's all, if that mood, if that song comes on, I happen to be somewhere, the whole room goes <laughs> and looks at me to see if I'm about to do a, a dance move. So I'm happy um, to report I've never. Yeah. So the good. My SLC Punk is Serial Mom. So oh, yeah. I love that you were in Serial Mom. And was that wild to like, that's one of your first jobs ever. And you're in a yeah, John Waters yeah. movie with freaking. Not only Kathleen Turner, but Law and Order royalty Sam Waterston is playing your dad. Legend, the legend, legend Sam Waterston. Uh, yeah, it was my third audition, and I was in acting school, and literally got swept up and taken down to Baltimore to shoot. And you know, and that's the thing where you're like, how did I get? You know, how, I yeah. literally walked in to my waiting job, and I was like, I'm quitting. And like the next day, I was in Baltimore. 
Um, but that, look, that, again, look, I, I think that I've had a very blessed career in terms of like where it started. Like that was crazy. I mean, I was like the six, four sort of American cheese looking, you know, white boy <laughs> that fit into that role of what John was looking for. And he was like, all right, I'll take you. I mean, it could have been anyone. And, um, you know, and like, look, that was that thing where you, I'll, I'll never forget walking with Kathleen Turner across the quad at Towson State and like her being, first of all, I, I walk around the world with like a baseball hat on and I do not engage. Like, I'm like, dude, I just want to walk along. And, but Kathleen Turner was like, hair out, like showing the entire <laughs> world, like, I'm here. I'm like, why is she like, like, why should she should have a hat on? Cause like literally like 50 people were following behind her trying to get an autograph. And, and you know, I was like, and I said to Sam Watterson, I was like, what, what is going on? Like, why? Like, she's like living out loud. And, you know, he was like, you know, there is, there's this thing about fame that I think is really interesting. It's Sam Watterson's story. But Sam was like, there's a, a movie, there's a, there's a book out there called The Movie Goer. And he said to me, he's like, you know, look, fame is this thing where in, in The Movie Goer, there's a character walking down the main street in like a little town in the Midwest back in the 50s or 60s or something. And, and he's walking down the street and all of a sudden a guy comes up to him and the guy's got a you know cowboy hat on or whatever. And the guy goes, hey, can I get a light? And the guy looks up to give him a light. He looks up and he sees James Dean. Like there's Jimmy Dean right in front of him. And all of a sudden, that moment for the guy with the lighter is like, it's gone from just any other day to, you know, I was just down the street. I had just had breakfast. I had bacon and eggs. I was wearing a blue check shirt. He was wearing a blue shirt. He had a baseball hat. You know, that moment becomes marked as something specific out of the doldrum of lives, right? This, this ability for somebody to, to have an impact is because they're just changing the dynamic of what your normal everyday routine is. And, but for James Dean, he's just looking for light. I mean, the interesting thing is that, you know, if you just look at it from his point of view, it's, it's just another day he's asking for a light. And so if you can, I, I have this theory that if you can respect that power of celebrity and what it, what, how it can help or change people's lives for the better, it's a super, it's an incredible sort of um, balance of relationships, right? If I, like I do conventions all the time. If I see a little queer kid in Texas and I can hug the shit out of them and touch their face and be like, hey, I love you, I see you. And you can change that kid's like sense of being and worth. It's like the most profound thing in the world, right? Um, and that is the great aspect of this industry and our, our ability to sort of, I don't know, do good shit in the world. I mean, I go to do USO tours all the time and we'll be over there and all of a sudden you're in, you know, Afghanistan or Turkey or wherever you are. And all of a sudden you're, you're out there in the middle of the shit and you're saying hi to people and you're just changing the, their day to day sort of the doldrums of their lives. And it's pretty powerful if you use it for good. Yeah. So Kathleen Turner was giving that to a lot of people on the set. Yeah, I don't know. Am I talking too much? I'm talking no, too much. No, no, no. I'm talking. Uh, no, you're incredible. not talking too much at all. I just love the idea of Kathleen Turner doing like a full walk oh, yeah. every day, just well, letting listen. everybody take her in. <laughs> That's so funny I, to me. That, totally different. Th- 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 wait, there's like this thing of like, 
I don't know. She, whatever she was going through, like whatever she wanted, like she wanted in that moment to be powerful in, in those people's lives. She was like feeling it. Yeah. Um, as the kids say, but it was like, it was awesome to watch. It's like you were around. I mean, that's the thing about her is that you knew you were around a movie star when you were around her. Cause she would like, you know, do things like buy everyone dinner and like go out to drinks every night. And like, she was like, um, like my, the impact she had on my dad when my dad showed up to set, she treated him like, hi, Jeffrey. Like he was like moved by her, you know, her beauty and her charm and, her movie star qualities. I love yeah. it. I love her taking yeah. everyone to dinner. Oh, she's so she's good. Very sweet. What was this school? I'm like so impressed that the school paired you and Marishka together. Like how every moment can lead to something, and like yeah. you impacted this child. You get to pl- and then you're with and Carol then Burnett, came, it, and then it came back to you to impact one of your scenes that you were working on. You know, it's a yeah. Full and she moment. called me out. She called me out. She's like, that's what you're doing. And I was like, but wait, wait, can we just be an angry perp? She's like, no, it's his mother leaving him. You're a baby. Like, yeah. She's emotionally challenging me. Like we were on like, we were street gangs, <laughs> emotional street gangs. I'm like, no, it was like a night fight of emotions. But she won. No, I she think won. that's what makes you one of these like top weird characters on this show is that you're like, what's this guy's motivation? Like, what's his relationship to this woman? Like, why is he doing it? You know, it's different than just like, ah, I just killed him. Fuck you. You know, whatever. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? He's, de- he's definitely a weirdo. But that's the thing. Like, I think that you have to have fun. And I was like, I'm going for, I'm going for it. There, I see no reason to half step this weirdo. Totally. You brought it all the way home. Do you have anything you want us to like plug? Anything coming up? Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, I was going to say, well, I have Five Nights at Freddy's. So I'm doing this, this movie based on the very popular video game called Five Nights at Freddy's, which is super fun because that fan base is like voracious. And so that's, that's when is that coming out? Uh, That comes out uh, in October. So it comes out Halloween. Awesome. So we're, we're the, we're the Halloween movie for um, for Universal, which oh, is cool. Blumhouse, Blumhouse Universal thing. So that's fun. But then I'm launching a whiskey brand. Ooh, uh, yeah, it's called Fine Familiar Spirits. We're 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 launching high end spirit experiences around specific fandoms, and our first one is fantasy themed. So sort of Dungeons and Dragons, oh. Lord of the Rings. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Each drop is like a really high end. It's an incredible bourbon with like a story that transcends 16 drops and it's very exciting so that's called find familiar spirits so those two things are um they're exciting find familiar spirits all right love that all right thank you thank i think you we have whiskey i think show. we have whiskey drinkers and, and spirit drinkers in our in our like listenership <laughs> so <laughs> they'll keep an eye good. out uh you guys thank you for having me thank, thank you, you for doing it matthew really appreciate it cool. That was thrilling. Wow. wow. I don't think I've ever met a man who loves my husband so much. Maybe more than me. He might love him more than me. My husband has actually seen him since then and was like, I did it for you, man. <laughs> so like, they're in love. But yeah, Ew, this episode is a... so good. Yeah, it, it really is what we go to SVU for. You know, it's like AMC is what we go to the movies for. This is what we come to SVU for. We come for iconic guest stars, inappropriate relationships, 
crime, camp, ugh, penthouses. Yeah, uh, Yeah, a man with a diamond watch falling out of a penthouse, landing on a car with a screaming woman. I mean, it's like everything is so perfect. There's so much good SVU in this episode. And we, like, we had to get either him or Carol Burnett. And Carol Burnett is 90 and and probably not doing a ton of podcasts. So I'm just so grateful that we got Matthew Lillard because I really wanted to do this episode. And wow really paid off. I don't know if we got a ton of post-mortem uh, lessons out of it. Uh, like, what did we learn? Um, if you marry a man that's bad, kill his ass and make sure that your little nephew that you're fucking helps you. I guess they well, weren't really onto nephew, but also, it was that relationship. Also, I mean, a great lesson in the end, which is people will treat you the way they treat everybody. So don't think that you're special. Like, you thought you were going to yeah. fuck with Birdie like that? Nah, like... Why would you be any less disposable? So that's definitely a lesson. Don't fuck with a birdie type of person. Yeah. They're not going to make an exception for you, honey. Yeah. It's honestly shocking that he even had the sort of like, I don't know, manipulation skills to like pin it on her. You know, like he just seemed like a little bit... uh Touched by an angel. But anyway, we learned that, yeah, people, when they treat one person like that, they're going to treat you like that. We learned talking about money is vulgar. (laughs) (laughs) I think for me, too, the, like, Kimes crime was just... Oh, right. So bonkers and, like dramatic, cinematic. Like, I can't believe I don't know more about it that I've never heard of it. It just seems like so up our alley and so like I wonder what what like what other crimes were happening that we was this a, like a Scott Peterson moment you know like yeah why, how did this just fall under our radar so intensely it's so funny because I feel like today if this happened today there would be a full series a Hulu series a podcast I mean like this is the age of the scam right now. And these people are like scammers of the highest quality. Like you were going to steal a townhouse. You were going to transfer deeds to property. Like it's not like you're just stealing a bunch of jewelry to hawk it. Like you're taking a townhouse in Manhattan. Like it's really wild. Like I just feel like, you know, someone is going to come along and do like a podcast of this case because it is so just like, made for right now. Everyone's obsessed with scam and scammers. Yeah, my, their big flaw was like, she was way too popular. Like she had camera. It just seems like so silly. Like you, you got to go to a shut-in. You got to go to someone where no one's in their will. You can't go try to steal a home from someone that is known for parties. You got to go to the um, Collier brothers, those guys that are like shut-ins and, and no one would reckon, no one would, real the guys from Alta Cockers, like no one would realize for de- a decade that they were gone, you know? Yeah, to go to like the most powerful, not powerful, but, but like popular. Yeah, yeah, like a popular babe that like knows Shaka Khan. It, it just seems wild, but I'm sure they were just so arrogant at that point. They're like the guys who robbed Kim Kardashian. I mean, like they're robbing one of the most famous people in the world. It's like there's a lot of other unknown people that have expensive shit you can take. But you don't know their fucking schedules. Yeah. That's, that was That's that true. wild yeah. twist. But I loved, he just, I also, they're like, they had money. Like she truly just did it for the love of the game. And (laughs) she is, I think the first person that we've really covered that went to prison for slavery charges. I mean, it was just like a lot of firsts for that. Yeah. 
in terms of crimes. <laughs> also, um, th- that they <laughs> I like calling religious Jews penguin, little penguins. That's so <laughs> the penguinitos. Yeah, I think that's funny. But I also think he. Um, Chet, I think with Chet, Benson broke him. You know, the lesson we learn over yeah. and over, don't trust the police, don't talk to the police. And I guess for him, it's always don't go to jail for a man. But I guess in this case, don't go to jail for your incest aunt, you know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I don't know if that's as cute of a t-shirt, though. I still want to make the don't go to jail for a man t-shirt. Yeah, but yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> don't go to jail for an incest aunt will be like a one-off we make just for ourselves. But let's go to, let's um, get to this week's What Would Sister Peg Do? Obviously. Uh, you know, this episode, this segment, you guys know, is where we direct you to like a charitable organization or a doc or something that's going to give you more information about the cause that or the topic that we talked about in the episode today. Obviously, this episode was very wild, like fully, you know, based on grifters, and there's not really a bunch of charities to support grifting. So we thought we would direct you guys to the TV movie based on uh, Santi and Kenny Kimes. That's called Like Mother, Like Son, The Strange Story of Santi and Kenny Kimes, starring Mary Tyler Moore, Robert Forster, and Gene Stapleton. It's a helpful lesson for families in preventing con artists from murdering their elderly family members and stealing their Manhattan brownstones. You know, having your vulnerable son be seduced into a psychosexual relationship with their own mother. So the full film is on YouTube. It's not the highest quality, but it could be a fun watch. And the link is in our show notes and on our Instagram and our stories and saved forever in our Instagram story highlights called WWSPD2. Yeah. So if you're feeling extra generous, there are plenty of places we have talked about. Get into it. Go into our thing and see, uh, check out all of the organizations that we've highlighted because if you want to do a little July donation, then we've got other great causes. There are people to help everywhere. And next week, we'll be doing a nice Twisted Dark episode from season one, episode 16, The Third Guy. So take a look. Take a look. Have fun. Peacock, <laughs> the internet, Hulu. Come see us on tour. We love you guys. See you next week. That's Messed Up is an Exactly Right production. If you have compliments you'd like to give us or episodes you'd like us to cover, shoot us an email at thatsmesseduppod at gmail.com. Follow the podcast on Instagram at That's Messed Up Pod and on Twitter at Messed Up Pod. And follow us personally at Kara Clank and at Glitter Cheese. As always, please see our show notes for sources and more information. Thank you so much to our producer, Casey O'Brien. And to our mixer, John Bradley, and our guest booker, Patrick Kotner. And to Henry Kapersky for our theme song and Carly Jean Andrews for our artwork. Thank you to our executive producers, Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, Danielle Kramer, and everybody at Exactly Right Media. Dun, dun! dun. <laughs> Follow That's Messed Up and SVU Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase That's Messed Up merch.